I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A note for listeners, this episode contains discussion of suicide. Please listen with caution and care. In May of 2008, Ashley and Albert Debelbot welcomed their first baby girl, Mackenzie Leilani. The Debelbots were a successful military couple stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia, and the birth of their daughter filled them with more joy than they ever imagined. Once they brought baby Mackenzie home from the hospital, the new parents put her to bed and went to sleep. In the early morning hours, Ashley and Albert woke up to find Mackenzie in distress. Concerned, they took her back to the hospital. Maybe a couple of hours later, the doctor comes in and tells us that she passed. And my ex-husband hit the floor. He started crying and screaming and rolling. And I just kind of sat there looking at the wall. And then I looked at the doctor and said, go get my baby ready so we can take her home. I think I was just in, de- in denial and shock because you just didn't tell me that my daughter was dead. And then Columbus Police Department showed up. And that's when everything pretty much went to hell. My name is Ashley Jordan. I spent 12 years and two months in the Georgia Department of Corrections prison system wrongfully convicted of a crime that I did not commit. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Ashley Jordan. Ashley Jordan was born in Laurel, Mississippi on May 13, 1984, to Brenda Dolores Jones and Thurman Jordan Sr. Oh, Ashley growing up, let me tell you about the little Poe. That's her nickname, Poe. That's Ashley's mom, Brenda. She was quite, she was a sweet little girl. Didn't never have to get no whippings for nothing. 
she was shy and you know it didn't take much to hurt her feelings. Ashley grew up with three brothers in a military family. After just a few years in Mississippi, Ashley's dad moved their family to Detroit, Michigan. Ashley adored her dad. My dad was very hands-on with us. He always made sure we we showed love to each other as brothers and sisters. He helped pray with us at night. Ashley's family loved any excuse to get together. Our family's very uh, big, and they like to cook out a lot. So <laughs> there's a cookout for everything. We love to get together and eat. So that's one of the fondest memories I have from growing up is being able to get together with our family members and we eat and have a good time. But behind closed doors, family life wasn't as picture perfect as it seemed. My childhood life with my mom and dad, Mary, was very, I like to call it chaotic. It was just a lot of, it was always a lot of arguing going on. Uh, My mom was a heavy drinker um, and my dad wasn't. So a lot of times that was a problem because they bumped heads with a lot of things. Her parents' marriage eventually fell apart. So Ashley's mom packed up and moved with the kids back to their home state. So we moved back to Mississippi in 1992. Um, My mom got a job and pretty much just settled us there. I don't think we understood as kids that we were going to be living in in Mississippi. I believe that we were just going to visit and we were going back home to Detroit. But when we started registering for school, it just kind of came out of nowhere where we had to start over again as kids. Brenda worked hard as a single parent to make ends meet. She and Ashley are close now, but at the time, Ashley wanted to get out of that situation. To be honest with you, I didn't want to save my mom anyway at that time. Because of her drinking, um, I just didn't like it. All my other friends, their moms didn't drink like that, so I saw a difference in that pattern. Like I said, she was a great mother when it came to taking care of us. It's just the drinking was very, it put, it put a strain on me and our relationship early on. Ashley opted to leave her mom's house and instead live with her grandparents. However, things weren't much better once she made the move. She started to notice similarities between her grandfather's behavior and her mother's. My grandfather, her, her dad was a heavy drinker. Heavy drinkers, putting it lightly, he was an alcoholic. So I seen the pattern of where my mom, where that filtered on into her. So in the house of my grandmother, we dealt with a lot of the same chaos. At the same time she was facing these family troubles, Ashley was also maturing and learning to live her own life. Here's Brenda again. As she grew up and got older, she started coming out of it and started doing stuff. She became a cheerleader in school, stuff like that, played basketball, Northeast Jones Tigers. Yes, Lady Tigers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was a basketball player, a cheerleader with those five sexy legs. Yes. Ashley also loved school. She was smart and ambitious. She even had a career picked out for herself, one that she admits was inspired by her own unique smile. You've seen I have a gap between my teeth, and I've always been very fond of teeth. I like teeth and how they look, and I, w- I wanted to be an orthodontist. But Ashley wound up on a different path. The turning point came one day when she was out shopping with a friend. 
and we were shopping at a place that was right next door to the the well, the recruiting office for the, all the the branches in the military. And it was a recruiter standing outside smoking a cigarette. Ashley was impressed by his uniform. She told him he looked spiffy. And he said, you want one? I said, whatever. <laughs> and before I knew it, I was sitting in his office looking at brochures. In my family, they always encourage you, go to college, go to college. And I thought, you know what? I just spent 12 years in school. I don't want to go to college. At least not right then I did. She did want to get a college education eventually. So Ashley was sold on the idea that the military would finance her ambition. And all I could think was pay for college, pay for college. I didn't tell anybody I was joining. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell anybody. I just kept it a secret. After high school graduation in 2002, Ashley's friends started going off to college. And my mom came up to me one day and she said, so what do you got going on? And I said, what do you mean? She said, are you going to school or you going to start working or something? And I was like, well, I got something else planned. She said, like what? Because you haven't said anything to me. I looked up one day, my baby came home. She came home from work, said she was finna join the army. I said, oh, who? On the day she told Brenda the news, Ashley brought an army recruiter to her mom's house to meet and talk about her plans. So he comes walking up the driveway and she looked at me and she just started screaming and she was so excited. And I said, are you happy? And she said, yes, I'm happy. She said, this was a great career. My mom was the most supportive person I had in my Army career. Ashley originally joined as part of the Army Reserve and wound up stationed in South Korea in 2007. She soon worked her way up to sergeant. Ashley loved the military. And after only three months in South Korea, she was about to find another love. Tell me how you meet Albert. By the first time I was actually going into my barracks room for the first time and he walked by and I complimented his calf muscles. <laughs> I said, you got some nice calf muscles. And he looked at me and was looking at me like this girl is weird. <laughs> Albert Debelbot was a male clerk in Ashley's unit. She would often see him around. He was lower ranking and I was high ranking. So he just kind of kept it professional going back and forth. And to be honest, every guy at that unit was trying to get my attention and talk to me, but he wasn't. And that kind of intrigued me. So I started to like him and I kind of went after him. <laughs> um, and one day I stopped and talked to him and we started watching DVDs together. And we realized we had to, we love the same kind of movies and the same kind of music. And that's kind of where the conversation started. And so I knew it. We were going on our first date. <laughs> so besides his calves, what else did you like about him? <laughs> the way he dressed. I have this, I love the way he dressed. And I realized that he was really nice. Like beyond just being a soldier, he was a really nice guy. Theirs was a whirlwind romance. You know, it was kind of quick. But I don't have a time limit on love. I'm going to say that I'm the kind of person that if it's there, it's there. And I'm going to go for it. So we met, we started dating August 2007. We got engaged September 2007, and we got married November 19, 2007. And the couple had more good news. While still in Korea after their engagement, Ashley found out she was pregnant. 
I threw the pregnancy test in his face. I said, look, look, look. And he looked at me. He's like, what does this mean? <laughs> and I said, it means we're pregnant. <laughs> so we were super excited to be having a baby. She and Albert wanted to have their baby in the States, so Ashley was able to get an honorable discharge. I want to be a hands-on mom. I don't want to be thinking that I'm going to be shipped here or shipped there, and my kids are being transferred from here to there. I just didn't want to deal with that. I'd rather be at home with my kids. Before coming to South Korea, Albert had served in Iraq. The newlyweds didn't want to worry about him being deployed again, so they found a military base where Albert could be on active duty without being marshaled out. So that's how we wind up in Georgia, because that was the only duty station that was offering him a non-deployable status where he wouldn't miss the baby's birth or I wouldn't be left alone. By March 2008, the young couple was back in the States getting ready for the birth of their baby. A few months later, Albert was asleep and Ashley was beside him in bed watching TV. And eating. Let me tell you what I was eating. I had a tray full of food. I had chocolate chip cookies, two peanut butter jelly sandwiches, a glass of milk, a bowl of cereal, some grapes and strawberries. And I was sitting there in the bed eating. (laughs) And I was watching George Lopez laughing and I started having contractions. And it got so bad that at one point I slung my fist over on the bed because the contraction hit me so hard and I hit him. (laughs) And he said, what's wrong? And I said, I think I'm having the baby. They headed to Martin Army Community Hospital, where on May 29th, 2008, Ashley gave birth to a baby girl, Mackenzie Leilani. Ashley had always loved the name Mackenzie, and Leilani was chosen by Albert, who is Palawan. I've had Mackenzie name picked out since the ninth grade. I was super excited to name my daughter Mackenzie. So her middle name was Leilani, and it means beautiful flower in Palawan culture. After two and a half days in the hospital, Ashley and Albert were able to take Mackenzie home. As for many new parents, their first evening home was nerve-wracking. I was afraid to go to sleep. I, my mind, Frank, kept thinking, if you go to sleep, something's going to happen. She's going to roll over. She's going to smother. I don't know. I was just very cautious. I was scared. My mom, of course, you know, advice from older people was saying, Ashley, you can go to sleep. And Albert was already asleep, preparing to go back to work. So Ashley relented and tried to get some sleep herself, with Mackenzie in the bassinet next to the bed. In the early morning hours of June 1st, Ashley and Albert were both sleeping fitfully. We were tussling in the bed, and we both woke each other up, and we both were dreaming. And I looked at him, he looked at me, and I said, I just had the craziest dream. And he said, me too. And then they heard Mackenzie fussing in her bassinet. I said, well, it's your turn to feed her. So he was getting the bottle ready, and I was getting her out the bassinet. I said, I was, I was telling him about my dream. I said, I was dreaming I was falling through an elevator shaft. I said, but when I got to the bottom, I woke up. He said, oh, my God, I was dreaming I was falling off a cliff. He said, but when I got to the bottom, I woke up. I said, that's crazy. (laughs) And we just started feeding her. And then I noticed the lump on her head. And I said, what is that? Ashley called the hospital and spoke to a doctor about the lump on Mackenzie's forehead. But the doctor said she was fine. So then we tried to feed her and she was like, she was gasping for air. Like she just looked like she just couldn't breathe. And I called them back and said, we're bringing her in. 
And by this time, we're hysterical because she doesn't look good. She looks like she's turning colors. And we're, we left everything in a disarray. And we left in such a hurry, we left our cell phones at the house. Within minutes, Mackenzie had taken a turn for the worse. And we get to the hospital. And before he can even stop the car, I was jumping out. And I ran inside the emergency room. And I threw her out at the nurse. And I said, please help my baby, something wrong. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where they work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Ashley called her mom from the hospital to tell her what was happening. Brenda and her husband had already planned to come meet Mackenzie the following day, but now she was racing to get to the hospital. We was trying to get, I was trying to get the fastest I could. And she just, I said, baby, well, I'm on the way. We're erratic. We're scared. We don't know what's going on. A couple of hours passed as the new parents waited anxiously for news of their baby. Finally, a doctor came to tell Ashley and Albert that Mackenzie had passed away. Albert collapsed on the floor. He started crying and screaming and rolling. And I just kind of sat there looking at the wall. And then I looked at the doctor and said, go get my baby ready so we can take her home. I think I was just in, de- in denial and shock because you just didn't tell me that my daughter was dead. And I just didn't want to believe it. And then almost immediately after Albert and Ashley heard the news about their baby girl, personnel from the military showed up. And I was a little weird about why they were there. And then Columbus Police Department showed up. And that's when everything pretty much went to hell. And in my mind frame, I was like, no, this is not, this is not normal. Nobody calls the police when somebody passes away. This is not normal. She wasn't murdered. Why are they here? And when they separated us and the kind of questions they were asking and the way the detective was looking at me, that's when I was, I, I said, they think we've done this. Police took note that Albert was devastated, but that Ashley wasn't showing as much emotion. And at that time, I just lost a baby. And I'm, I don't know how to grieve at this point. It was just kind of unbelief. Like, this was, it was like a, a nightmare happening before my eyes. But at that point, police took Ashley back to her and Albert's apartment to photograph and search their home. They began questioning her about what had happened that night? Where were, where was I? Like, what time I went to sleep? How long was Albert asleep before I went to sleep? What did we do that day? Who came to the house? Things like that they were asking. Once the police were done at the apartment, Ashley and Albert were left to process all that had just happened. 
we couldn't even sleep in our room because her room was right next to ours with all her stuff. So we slept downstairs. We, we couldn't go up there. By this point, Ashley's mother had arrived. That was just, that was too, that was, that was just over, that was too much. Oh, and Ashley was just crying and, and Albert, he was just screaming in the background. She was stronger than he was, you know, Ashley was stronger than he was just screaming and crying. And she said, my mama, go, let me go try to take care, you know, look after him. The next morning, the police called and said the preliminary autopsy report was ready and that the couple should come to the station. Do you remember when you realized that they thought that you and Albert had done this? I realized it when they separated us. And then that's when the interrogation started. Ashley was interrogated by Detective Andrew Tyner. I will never forgive him because he called me a monster. And he said, the preliminary autopsy results said that she died from blunt force trauma to the head. And she had multiple score fractures and that we did it. Ashley and Albert were adamant. They had nothing to do with Mackenzie's death and had no idea what happened to her. Yet they were held and interrogated for hours. Now, mind you, I'm postpartum. I just had a baby. I am hemorrhaging. And my breasts are filling up with milk, and they just sat there and interrogated me for hours. And wouldn't give me any feminine hygiene products. And I was bleeding from having the baby. And they just sat there and kept interrogating me. And so I didn't understand what was happening. So I just assumed that I would go home. Like, I just thought that we would go home. I didn't think it would be... What happened, for sure. But we didn't go home. And eventually, the detectives tried to turn Ashley and Albert against each other. If one of y'all just say y'all did it, because both of y'all going to go to jail and both of y'all going to go to prison, but if one of y'all just say y'all did it, then one of y'all can go home and help fight for the other one. That's what they told us. But they made sure nothing was recording when they did that. And he was about to say he did it just so I can go home and won't go to jail. And I looked at him and I grabbed his hand and I said, no, you're not. You will not lie for these people. He said, I don't want you to go to jail. I said, I don't care. We're going to go together then. And that's just what it's going to be. I said, because we didn't do anything wrong. Ashley and Albert were arrested that same day. Did you think it was possible that they could have done this at all? Did that? Did you think oh. that was possible? Oh, no, baby. I never even think twice, not even for a split second, that they done something to that baby. That's they, oh, that was their only child. And they had everything going for them. Are you serious? They had everything going for them. Ashley was charged with malice murder, felony murder, and cruelty to children in the first degree. And it was the most humiliating experience is being booked into the county jail. They strip you of everything that was ever yours. I'm bleeding from having a baby. They don't provide you with any type of extra clothing. They just give you, they give you their uniform. And I said, well, I don't have any underwear. 
and I'm bleeding. But it was like, a, so we don't provide that. And they set me in a cell, in a cold cell for hours on concrete. And then I got took a mug shot and they put me in a suicide cell. And I remember bleeding all over my pants. I just, I just felt disgusted. I, I just remember crying and crying in that cell thinking, this can't be happening to us. Like we didn't, we didn't do nothing wrong. Alone in the cell, Ashley's mind was racing. I started thinking about him. I started thinking about our daughter. I started thinking about our life and how they were portraying us to be. I went to bed on top of the world. I got, I got a new marriage. I had a baby. And then I woke up and the whole world was on top of me. And I didn't know how to breathe. And at that moment is when I contemplated killing myself. I just kept looking around, thinking, like, what can I do? How can I do it? Over a year later, on October 26, 2000, the trial started. The prosecutor was Sedona Daly. Ashley and Albert each had a separate defense team. One of the things that the state really wanted to present was to depict Ashley as a cold-hearted, really this angry Black woman, because that's the kind of woman that would harm her own child. This is Jiminique Rogers. She's a criminal defense attorney and a doctoral student in criminal justice and criminology and has represented Ashley. And so what the jury heard was the state saying that Ashley was this cold-hearted woman who was controlling, controlling of um, Albert, and that she didn't show any or appropriate sadness when her baby died. And that whatever was going on, they were trying to hide things. And then they presented Dr. Darisol to say that there is no way, there's no other way other than intentionally, an intentional blunt force trauma, that the injuries to McKenzie would have occurred. Dr. Laura Darisol was a medical examiner for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the state's primary witness. She performed the autopsy on Mackenzie the day after she died. Dr. Darisaw said she found extensive fractures on Mackenzie's head and bleeding in the brain. And once she saw blood, she deemed this to be a homicide and reached out, called out to law enforcement and communicated that unless the parents had some other explanation for this, then it had to be blunt force trauma either by a series of blows to McKenzie's head or a crushing type of injury. Dr. Darisaw concluded that the injuries happened near the time of McKenzie's death by no more than four hours. And the injuries were so traumatic that if they had happened during birth, the hospital would have noticed. The prosecution concluded that without any other explanation, this was a homicide by the only two people who were with Mackenzie that night. The state also presented a jailhouse informant, Melvin Tarver, who had been in jail at the same time as Albert. He testified that on the morning that trial was about to start, 
Albert told him that his wife had harmed the baby. Tarver's story was that Albert told him he had gone out to get drugs that night. And when he returned, the baby wasn't moving. According to Albert, he asked Ashley, you know, what you did, what did you do? And Ashley says, nothing. I just spanked her and put her to bed. Tell me about the jailhouse snitch. Can you tell me what you thought when you saw them on the stand? I was livid. I was ready to jump over that table and fight. And I'm not a violent person. (laughs) But when he came to the door, I looked at Albert. I said, do you know him? He said, no, I don't know him at all. And I know he wasn't lying because I'm sociable. I'm the person that can walk into a room full of strangers and make friends. He's going to walk into the room and sit by himself. He's not talking to anybody because he's quiet. He's very humble, very to himself. So, no. So, I didn't believe it, but I was so mad because I was like, what is he? What is, who is this guy? But what made me mad was that the fact that the judge even allowed it to happen. Dominique says that off the bat, Ashley and Albert were at a disadvantage. There was a systemic breakdown in a fundamentally fair trial for Albert and Ashley. They sat in jail for quite some time without proper representation. And that sets the stage for what happened with their attorneys once they got in court. Ashley hired private attorney Sandy Callahan and Albert was appointed Bill Mason. And both of these were highly respected attorneys. They had two very different perspectives of going into the trial. Albert's attorney's strategy was to not challenge the medical evidence to be presented by Dr. Derisaw and the prosecutor. On the other hand, Ashley's attorney wanted and intended to challenge that medical evidence. In order to challenge the prosecution's medical evidence, Callahan brought in John Plunkett, a forensic expert, to talk about shaken baby syndrome, or SBS. The science behind this diagnosis was starting to be questioned at the time. Experts had found other causes or conditions that could mimic symptoms of SBS. Today, SBS is acknowledged to be junk science. But there was a problem with Plunkett refuting Dr. Derisaw. The judge, Douglas Pullen, did not require the prosecution to turn over the medical evidence they were going to use at trial. And there was no way that the, a defendant can prepare a defense, a medical defense, without the evidence that the prosecutor has. And because of the collaborative efforts of the judge and the prosecutor in the case, the defense was never able to get this information. So at that point, Ashley's attorney asked for a continuance. Albert's attorney opposed it. And the judge, Judge Douglas Pullen, denied it. And so that was the context in which the trial began. So ultimately, Ashley was unable to have a medical defense. In fact, Callahan didn't put on much of a defense for Ashley at all. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Daly pointed out that the defense did not present any evidence contradicting Dr. Darisaw. Neither the defense attorney nor the judge stopped the prosecutor when she shifted the burden to the devil bot saying they had the responsibility to present some evidence that this was, you know, not homicide. And they would have, but they don't have any evidence. And then they 
ended by arguing in closing that the state didn't even have to prove really what we consider proof beyond a reasonable doubt. At the end of any trial, if there's a doubt, the jury must acquit. The prosecution's burden was to prove beyond any doubt that Albert and Ashley were guilty. But in her closing argument, Daly shifted the meaning of reasonable doubt. She goes on and says, this means we don't have to prove that 90%. You don't have to be 90% sure. You don't have to be 80% sure. You don't have to be 51% sure. It does not mean to a mathematical certainty. The 51% sure is so offensive because it simply means that this prosecution doesn't have to present and doesn't have to meet any burden. Neither Ashley nor Albert's attorneys objected to that misrepresentation of reasonable doubt. And Daly went on to make other misstatements and inaccuracies that the defense failed to object to as well. After a short four-day trial on October 29, 2009, Ashley and Albert were convicted of all three charges and sentenced to life in prison. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. 
Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Ashley got to prison, she had no hope left. I would try to commit suicide again. I tried to take all my pills and, my, and I had some of my medicine and I tried to do it again, but a friend walked in and stopped me. Ashley knew she needed to create a routine if she wanted to survive. So she got a job and started making friends and taking courses and classes. One thing I learned while I was there was to stack your paper. And people say, stack your paper, your money? I said, no, stack your resume. In 2009, Ashley's team moved for a new trial, arguing ineffective assistance of counsel based largely on a failure to present medical evidence rebutting the state's case. A few years later in 2014, Jiminique came on Ashley's case. They were only arrested because there was a lack of the ability for them as parents to explain what happened to their child. They were then denied the opportunity to have a full medical analysis of their case to get a fair day in court. In 2015, that day finally came. Judge Arthur Smith III heard medical testimonies from defense experts who concluded that Mackenzie's injuries likely happened before birth. After years of appeals being denied, finally on February 28, 2020, the Georgia Supreme Court vacated their convictions based on ineffective assistance of counsel at trial. Tell me about when you found out Ashley and Albert were going to get out. Oh, I found out before she did. <laughs> Ms. Rogers called me and told me. She, Ms. Rogers told me. I, I dropped the phone. Brenda couldn't wait to tell her daughter the good news. She called me and I said, well, Ashley, I said, y'all conviction has been overturned, sweetie. I heard her when she 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 screamed. She just just bust out of the store screaming. She said, Why are you for real? She just run and screamed and said, Thank you, Jesus. She kept saying, Thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. After their release, the current district attorney, Mark Jones, apologized publicly to the devil bots on behalf of the court. In his apology, Jones said there is now, quote, mounting medical evidence that says the child was born this way. Ashley was finally free, but although she and Albert stayed in touch during their imprisonment and were able to see each other occasionally, the trauma they had endured was too much for their marriage. While they were still incarcerated, Albert asked for a divorce. He was so busy fighting for his life. How do you fight for your marriage to stay when you're trying to fight for your life? He said he didn't even know me no more as a wife. He, he didn't even remember me as that person. What did that feel like when he said when he said that? Devast I was devastated. I, was, I felt less than. I felt ugly because, of course, I can't dress up and look nice like I would if we were home. <laughs> so every time he saw me, I had on a jail uniform that was dirty and dingy. 
my hair wasn't combed like I like it and and I just looked awful so I felt like maybe he thought I was ugly now and maybe he couldn't remember what I looked like before this because all he see is this so a lot of things ran through my mind they never got to grieve for their child and then were left to sit in prison for years, the prime years of their lives, while they waited, hoping to get justice. The devil bots can never go back. They can never go back and recover the years that they lost. But Ashley is trying. She moved into her own place, started working, is in school for health administration and management, and has made friends with her neighbor, Miss Jackie. We kind of bonded because she lost a child too. She lost a son. And we bonded off dealing with that as a whole, as mothers. Like the rest of her large family, Ashley loves to cook and share meals. One day, Ashley was bringing over food to Miss Jackie. So I would just cook all this food. Like I had a big family living here with me, and I would take her food too. And that day, Miss Jackie was with her daughter, Frida, a sergeant in the military. When she met Frida, Ashley felt herself opening up to love again. I enjoyed being a wife. I enjoyed being a mom. I enjoyed that life. And I wanted it back, but I just didn't know how I wanted it back because I was so afraid of people. I was afraid to trust people. I was afraid to be around people. And I looked up Frida one day and I was like, this is happening. We started talking, I guess, talking in March. And I asked her to marry me October 1st. Now Ashley is making a family with Frida and Frida's son. Everything is still so new to me and I'm learning, but I'm so glad that I have a partner that's willing to be patient with me and kind with me and loving with me. And let me be a mother, an additional mother to her son. Ashley is also focused on advocating for reform within the prison system. I'm using what happened to me as a beacon for goodness and for positiveness. Because even though I was innocent, a lot of my friends are guilty and they have to do their time. But they still deserve to be treated with humane conditions and respect and dignity. And that's not what's happening in the prison system. But I would have never known that unless this happened to me. Ashley applied for compensation for her wrongful conviction from the state of Georgia. In Georgia, a specific bill has to be passed for each individual. And Ashley's bill for compensation was denied in 2021. I asked Ashley if she has anything she'd like to say to listeners, and she does. If anybody's listening, make sure you register to vote. And I say this because there's over 190,000 people on parole in the state of Georgia, and they're not allowed to vote. There's over 19,000 people that are on probation in Georgia, and they're not allowed to vote. They get out of prison after they're served their time successfully. They pay taxes in a state that they're not allowed to even vote for the leadership over them in that actual state. So if you don't vote for anybody else, vote for those who can't vote for themselves. And that's all I got to say. To help support the cause of ex-offender voting rights, go to womenontherise.ga.org or the Southern Center for Human Rights at schr.org. You'll find all those links in our bio.
Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Charles Jackson. They put their guns on me. They asked me for my driver's license. Saw my name and said, I guess this him, and locked me up. So I ain't had nothing to worry about because I didn't do anything. Three, four days later, you know, I was charged with murder. Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, producer Lila Robinson, and story editor Sonia Paul. The show is edited and mixed by Annie Chelsea, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.